0: Industrial Security Podcast with Andrew Ginter and Nate Nelson, sponsored by Waterfall Security Solutions. Hello and welcome back everybody to the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm sitting here with Andrew Ginter. He is the Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions, and he is going to introduce the subject and the guest of today's show. Andrew, how are you?
1: Hello, Nate. It's great to join you again. Our guest today is Eric Byers, a pioneer of industrial cybersecurity and currently the CEO of Adolis. I caught Eric at the Public Safety Canada Industrial Control System Workshop in Charlottetown, PEI. We chatted for a while about the topic of the software supply chain and how to ensure that it's trustworthy.
0: Let's listen in to you and Eric Byers.
1: So, our topic today is uh, supply chain integrity, software supply chain integrity. Um, can we talk about, you know, what is this? This is a big field. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, the, the NSA in the, the United States was accused of corrupting firmware in hard drives that were delivered to, uh, I don't know, you know targets of, of, of espionage. Um, is that close to the mark? What, you know, what, how big is this field? What's the problem that we're, that we're dealing with here?
2: Well, actually, it's an interesting field, and when I started, I thought it was a lot smaller. I've learned now that it's it's a it's a monster elephant, um, and one of the amusing parts of this, um, you probably remember the story of the five blind men who uh, discover an elephant, and each one of them thinks it's a completely describes it in a completely different way. Uh, one says it's sharp and pointy because he's up at the tusks. The other one says no, it's like a snake because he's back at the tail. And nobody has an accurate view of what it is. Everybody's got their localized view. And that's what I've discovered in the supply chain um, security world is is it's a big, monstrous elephant and uh, with a lot of separation between you know how you view it whether you're a, a vendor whether you're an asset owner what vertical you're in what your particular concerns are so the example you just brought up is a great example of one little piece of the problems that i'm seeing in supply chain security right now
1: so if that's one example can you give me other examples what what problem you've been studying the field you're honing in on on certain areas what what problem are you are you working with what you know what should we be thinking about here in terms of of uh, the problem. Can you describe it?
2: Yeah. Um, so the problem I'm particularly interested in is how do we as users trust the firmware and software we're loading into our industrial control systems? You know, and and, and trust is made up of a lot of different components. You know, the example that you gave about um, the NSA uh, manipulating firmware and hard drives is an example of counterfeiting um, and injection into the supply chain of of malicious code or, uh, you know, Trojan code. But it's it's interesting, and I'll give you a couple of examples of where I see this in the ICS world. The area that originally got me interested was the whole question of counterfeiting and the injection of malicious code into the supply chain. And that was because when I was at Defino Security, we got very involved in the dragonfly attacks, analyzing the dragonfly attacks. Um, and if you're not familiar with those, um, those attacks were... Um, attacks against probably pharmaceutical and energy companies in Europe. And the attackers, instead of going after their intended victims, actually went after uh, suppliers of ICS um, hardware. And they penetrated the websites of three vendors of ICS equipment uh, and replaced the legitimate upgrades and software downloads off on those um, vendors' websites with trojanized versions, versions of the software. That looked legitimate but contained havocs. and it was a brilliant maneuver because it, for an attacker, it was great return on investment. All you need to do is get to one uh, vendor, and you can victimize hundreds of industrial sites. And in that, in the particular vendor we did an analysis of, uh, there were about three hundred downloads from their site. If I assume that the average technician is downloading once but installing many, then we're seeing you know maybe um, hundreds, maybe thousands of sites with this malware deep in the control system. I mean, it, it was pretty amazing. And this stuff would call home uh, and give the attackers amazing capabilities inside the plant. So that's one example. That's the, the counterfeiting example. But there's other things that, you know, as I started, and this is, you know, I started with the counterfeiting example, and that's what got me interested. But when I started to ask around, people came up and said, no, 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 that's not the problem in supply chain. The problem in software supply chain is we don't know what the bill of materials are. So if you look at some of the uh, NIST uh, efforts right now, um, one in particular uh, software ID, where you're trying to say, hey, here's a package being supplied by a vendor, for example, but what subcomponents are in there? What, what third-party products have they got embedded there? And this matters because, uh, for example, you know, say uh, one of those third parties, or one of those open source components suddenly has a vulnerability. As an asset owner, as a company running refineries, for example, yeah, you've been buying product off of ICS Vendor X, but you've actually been getting products that are from other parties that you don't even know you should be patching for. So there's a whole world uh, around not necessarily malicious behaviors, but just this absolute lack of knowledge of what you actually loaded, how old it is. And as I started to work on this, I realized that even the vendors themselves don't know uh, what is in the packages that they're selling. Um, You say, how could that be? Well, first of all, the... People that uh, they're buying from, you know, they're buying components. Nobody rolls an entire system from scratch. are always buying components. Um, so they're buying software Who are uh, from companies who supply particular components. You know, Tofino sold all sorts of software. Of course, Tofino was using all sorts of third-party components that we were licensing. I suspect that the people we were licensing from were using other third-party components. So you have this very complicated chain, and then to add even more chaos. One of the things when I was um, at Belden, I noticed that the developers would get a library and use it forever. And it may be 5, 10, 15 years old. They're still using the same library. And so they have no interest in checking if there's vulnerabilities. So you get these hidden vulnerabilities. So that's another example
0: of why you want to really understand your supply chain. But there's more as well. It sounds to me like Eric is talking about two issues here. There's the the counterfeit or Trojanized software with the embedded Trojans. And then there's the other issue of of tracking security updates.
1: That's right. I mean, the, the term that Eric used is software bill of materials. And this is, you know, ideally a list of all of the chunks of software in a product and where they came from. I mean, who produced them originally? You know, there's a lot of people I mean, I, I wrote software for 25 years. When you write software, you you generally don't write all of it yourself. You use other people's libraries. Sometimes you buy other people's source code to their libraries, compile it yourself, embed it in your product. There's a lot of stuff embedded in a modern executable or a modern package of many executables. You know the the question becomes then, you know, somebody issues a, a serious vulnerability report in this library from vendor X. Well, I just bought a large package of software from vendor Y. And I you know that software has some of the capabilities of the library of, of vendor X. I wonder if vendor X's library, where this horrible vulnerability has just been announced. I wonder if that's in my vendor Y package. Generally speaking, there's no way to get an answer. You have no idea if vendor Y bought you know vendor X's package, vendor X's library and embedded it. And so figuring this out and, you know, putting together a a definitive list of materials saying where all of this software came from is very valuable in terms of understanding when there's a vulnerability report, am I affected by that?
0: Okay. So let's say we do come up with this, this way to learn about these libraries embedded in products. Um, What do you do with, what do you, what do you do about that? What good is, is this knowledge to you?
1: Well, that's, you know, that's a really hard question. If, If the library is sort of standalone and, you know, updatable, you might update it with, you know, suitable testing. Um, You might contact the vendor and say, hey, there's this problem. Are you going to update your package and you test it and give it to me so I can install the update? But, you know, sometimes neither of them is practical. You've got this knowledge now you still need the knowledge. The fact that you can't solve the problem doesn't mean the problem goes away. The problem is still there. It's important to understand how much trouble you're in. Usually people use this knowledge to engineer compensating measures to say, okay, if I have a vulnerability in my package Y installed on 17 machines, how would an attacker take advantage of that? What are all the ways an attacker could take advantage of that vulnerability? Can I find a way to block every one of those attacks? Because most of these attacks are multi-stage. Can I block at least one of the stages in all of the ways to exploit the vulnerability? And these are called compensating measures. So if you, if you can't solve the problem directly, you have to find a way to solve it indirectly. But the first step is you got to know there's a problem. I mean that sounds like a really big problem. I mean it. It reminds me of what I, something I read very recently about the Huawei um, debate. I think it was a UK government agency uh, it did a source code review on them and you know verified that there was in at least the source code apparently no backdoor. This was the big debate. But what they concluded, what drew my attention was they said um, you don't need a backdoor. The thing is is riddled with with vulnerabilities. There's as you know, there's tens of copies of some libraries scattered throughout these these products. You know, if you're talking about issues with libraries, that you know, that that just sounds really hard.
2: I mean, it is a challenge, and I'm not going to say we can solve or anybody can solve the entire problem. But uh, we're starting to make some real progress in this area, and there's a number of research projects in trying to understand your libraries. And it and Huawei's a really cool example because. Uh, you know, it's, Huawei's not the first time we've dealt with um, foreign software. Uh, Kapersky has been a big issue in the United States, and whether companies should or should not run Kapersky software in critical applications. And we've had one client that was faced with this. They supply power to U.S. military. They weren't allowed to have Kaspersky uh, software. And you think that's an easy okay? Let's find where we have, you know, antivirus software installed and go get rid of it. No, it's not that easy. Again. Kaspersky licenses components out to all sorts of different companies. And so you're playing a bit of a whack-a-mole game unless you can build out that supply chain and understand,
0: uh, again, who built what pieces. I personally have some memory of that whole Kaspersky incident occurring. Um, I was actually interviewing a representative of their company, right around the time when the news story broke that Congress was making a big deal of, of getting rid of the software on their computers. It was a conflict in my mind at the time, because here I was speaking with somebody A representative of the company. I actually asked some other security experts at the time because I I wanted to personally see if there was any merit to these claims, Um, whether they believed people unrelated to Kaspersky that this was a real issue. Uh, The answer I mostly got was they thought it was, for lack of a better word, fake news. And so it turns out, a quick Google search, they did take the Kaspersky software that was operating in con- on congressional computers off of those computers as a result of this inquiry. I'm not sure what the basis of, of their claims were. Perhaps there's stuff that we as the public don't know. But it, it was definitely uh, a proxy for talking about the larger issue of, of Russian interference, cyber interference in our government.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, Eric talked about you know Trojans and counterfeit software. He talked about software updates. This, in a sense, is a third topic, but it's related to the the Trojans. Um, this is the question of with Huawei and with Kaspersky, they you know they're being accused of either embedding backdoors or you know surveillance techniques or other you know embedding nasties deliberately in their product. So it's not we're not talking. Counterfeits. We're talking the vendor doing, you know, the vendors being accused of this themselves, and uh, you know, either being accused of it or being accused of of having the potential for it. Uh, in both cases, and fundamentally, this is a new kind of question that is being asked in the last, you know, half decade about software. Traditionally, industrial control system engineers would ask the question of their software providers. Um, Do I trust this supplier to provide a a useful, reliable product for a very long period of time? Because when you engineer the product into your environment, it's very hard to change it out because you've you've connected it so thoroughly to other components in in the environment. The new question people are starting to ask is not do I trust the supplier to be to produce reliable software, the new concern is: Do I trust that this supplier is not going to be ordered by their government to insert a backdoor into the into you know future versions of the software that I use? That's a brand new question that people just weren't asking five years ago, and you know is is starting to come front of mind because of the the Kaspersky, the Huawei, and and related uh, news stories.
0: Right it's the cost of doing business in places like China or Russia, or so they say. I mean, I think that part of the philosophical problem here is if we're to extend the Kaspersky example, it may be equally politically viable to either get rid of software, which may have a backdoor uh, built in by the Russian government, and to just accuse them of that and get rid of it anyway.
1: Yeah. And, you know, there's all sorts of politics that come into it, politics that you know in a sense aren't really directly related to the question of industrial security you know this politics of of you know non-tariff trade barriers are there ways to keep competing countries software out of my country because it's politically expedient to do so that's that's a whole different topic and it's it's not really a security topic it's a political topic but to your point you know even if There's an order that says, get rid of this software. We do not trust the supplier anymore. If the government orders you to do it, as Eric pointed out, it's not easy to comply with such an order. If you're dealing with a large vendor who has lots of products and lots of components that they sell to other vendors to embed in their products... Now, tracking down all these components, this comes back to the uh, the Software Bill of Materials. How do you know what's in your software? It's really hard to answer the question, is there any Kaspersky software in any of the products that I bought from other vendors? It's really hard to answer the question for Huawei, it's really hard to answer the question for any vendor with a large non-trivial product portfolio. Lots of other vendors buy their stuff. Their their stuff shows up everywhere. So this is a a difficult problem. And the first step in solving it, as Eric points out, is let's start tracking this stuff. Let's understand what it is we're installing.
0: Yeah. And just before we move on, uh, I'd like to add a disclaimer that that these claims do have fundamental merit. China does hack U.S. companies very often, and these are not just Chinese companies, but the government, the Russian government. We all know the story. Um, So there are legitimate reasons for for government officials and for corporate officials to be worried about this sort of thing, for, frankly, us citizens to be worried about this sort of thing.
1: You know, that's a good point. It can be a legitimate concern. It could just be political interference and non-tariff trade barriers. The argument has been made that the good guys do this too. You know, Western governments could order, you know, their software... Vendors, you know they're they're the, the vendors that that have you know that they have a, a degree of influence with or control over, they could order them to do the same thing. They've been accused of the same thing. it's a it's a very murky business. but you know that's not really the, the the topic here. The topic is what are we doing about it? So so let's get back to Eric. A decade ago, there was a big push by by Microsoft to get code signing going. you know, is this problem not solved in the in the, in the intervening decade?
2: Well, well, that's a good question. And when I started, I thought we could address this using code signing technologies. Um, I've since, I believe code signing is useful, but I realized that there's a lot of limitations. Um, the first limitation is code signing really works well when your operating system inherently supports it. So Microsoft, great example. If you're running on Microsoft, Microsoft operating system checks when you're installing something using something called Authenticode. It checks to see if the the software that you're about to load, the executable, actually has a signed certificate on the back end of it. Hey, that's cool. But as soon as you get away from that one operating system, in fact, that current operating system, not Windows XP, but a very current version of Microsoft, um, it all falls to pieces. You cannot code sign, say, firmware for a PLC. Um, You could definitely sign it, but it would break it. Um, and then the actual PLC won't be checking it, so it completely breaks down. So that's the first problem with code signing. It's so far not been widely deployed. And and well, an IT person say, well, Windows is good enough. The reality is, as us people stuck in the ICS world, what really matters are the things that aren't running Windows. It's running Linux. It's running uh, you know all the embedded systems that we see in our control systems. So that's where code signing. Uh, is limited in the first place. The second thing about code signing is it um, expects a whole bunch of checks. You have this certificate chain, and your software or operating system should be checking that whole chain. Well, it turns out, out a good example is some research that was done by the University of Maryland, that the bad guys actually code sign all the time. Um, there's over a million pieces of signed malware out there as of two years ago. I nobody's counted recently, but at least two million pieces of si- or a million pieces of signed malware. That's appalling. Well, it, what's amusing is that the the bad guys have discovered that it's very effective to sign your malware because a lot of systems will inherently accept anything signed, and it's a way to get. Passed about a third of the antivirus products today is sign your malware and the antivirus products will uh, say, good enough, I'm I'm out of here. Now, the funny part is, 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 whoa, wait a second, signing is a trust mechanism. If you're not checking those chains of trust, um, that's like the policeman stopping you and wanting to see your driver's license and you just hand them some sort of card out of your cornflakes box and say driver's license on it. I mean, if the policeman just says, oh, yeah, it says driver's license and lets you go, the whole purpose of a driver's license is, is defeated. Now, that's the problem. I, one of the problems I see in code signing is that the the policeman, basically the operating systems and the uh, software that we've deployed, particularly in ICS, don't do the checks. Again, Microsoft Authentic Code actually does do the checks. The other thing that also breaks everything is um, code signing expects an internet connection to go out and check revocation lists and things like that. So ideally, this is where you want to actually make um, doing code signing part of your chain of trust and part of your whole supply chain is um, as you move software through a supply chain, you could be focused on making sure that what you're dealing with is continuously signed and the signing and certificates are are properly built. Um, And... You know, go back to Stuxnet as a great example hey that stuff was signed um, but what was interesting is it was being signed by stolen um, private keys and they you could have actually detected that if people were looking at the certificate chains they would see that the certificate chains that Stuxnet used while legitimate chains were non-standard they did not match the way real tech normally signed so there's a lot of techniques if you've you if you want to put it, put the effort into it or have something you know doing that checking it and that's where i see some opportunities
1: so eric used a lot of of uh, sort of technical terms there let me spend just a second introducing a couple of these concepts um, the, you know the the question of forging certificates i mean the the people behind Stuxnet are accused of having stolen Realtek, which is a, a, a device driver manufacturer, stolen their private key that's used to create these certificates and sign the, uh, the software with the stolen key. So it looks like a legitimate signature, or it looks mostly like a legitimate signature. As Eric pointed out, usually you don't have... You know, just one key and one signature you have something producing a certificate which is used to authenticate something else which is used to sign something else there's a chain of trust that's documented and uh, the software can trace back to the, the the original key but if you you know if you steal the key now you can forge these signatures now uh, you can sign stuff it looks like the vendor signed it it looks it looks legitimate so there has to be a way for the vendor to say hey, There's crap out there circulating that that, uh, has got my signature on it. Someone has stolen my key and has to revoke the key. So you put the key on a revocation list or you put the certificate on a revocation list on the internet saying, don't believe these certificates anymore, they've been revoked. Which means when you're checking the signature, now you've got to go out to the internet and check if any of the signatures or any of the certificates in the chain of trust between your software and the ultimate vendor, have been compromised and have been revoked. And so, you know, this is, this is complicated. It's as, as Eric, you know, one of his punchlines there was, was a lot of the times the, you know, the code that checks these certificates says, well, it's signed. I'm done. They don't actually follow it back. They don't actually check to see if anything's anything's been revoked worse in order to check if it's revoked, you have to have an internet connection. Who wants to connect their control systems to the internet? So, you know, there's there's a lot of issues with with uh, code signing, I think, is the, the bottom line here. And really, it only works on Windows. And there's a lot of other stuff in control systems that we need to ask the question, where did this come from?
0: Okay, most of that makes sense to me. On the other hand, don't we have fairly advanced methods of keeping private keys secure, whether it's advanced cryptography, methods from blockchain. Um, is that really such a big issue?
1: The the short answer is yes, it is a big issue. I mean, the, the long answer, I did some work a year ago with uh, one of the major certificate authorities. There's like a, a dozen of them in the world that everybody trusts. And they keep their private key literally locked in a bank vault behind inches of steel. There's a, you know, the lock is on a timer. It only opens once a week. You walk in with a CD, you sign everything on the CD, you walk out, you lock the thing again. Stealing the key off of that computer is very hard to do. But that's an organization that uh, values their key very, very highly. Mere mortals. I mean, there's probably a handful of these private keys auto-generated by software on your computer. Do you keep your computer in a vault? No, you don't. Uh, you know, the, in the Stuxnet example, how did that key get stolen? Speculation. I mean, nobody knows for sure. Speculation is the janitor did it. So, you know, the, the I guess the short answer is, is more accurately, it depends on how thoroughly we protect our keys. Most people don't. So this is a concern. I see. Can you talk about uh, you know, what, what led you to Adolus here?
2: Yeah, was, that's, that's a great question. So what led me to Adolus was uh, i had actually retired. I'd figured I would go ride my bicycle around Europe and take it easy and maybe do a little side consulting. So Jonathan Butts and Billy Rios approached me uh, about two years ago with this idea to take a technology that Billy had invented um, called White Scope and see if we could extend it. And, and that sort of got me curious because I'd been really bothered by the dragonfly attacks and feeling helpless. I could see like how effective this was from an attacker's point of view and yet how defenseless the industry was. But I hadn't done anything about it. And so suddenly with Jonathan and Billy showing up with this technology and I went, oh, this could solve something that bothered me four years ago. And so I just sort of, well, I initially said, yeah, I'd put a day a month into this and now it's just a full-time uh, obsession. I think that's because I think it's absolutely we got to address our supply chains, or all the firewalls in the world aren't going to help
1: you. So it's an important problem. It's an important topic. What are you doing at ADOLIS? What is ADOLIS? So ADOLIS basically has been um,
2: doing a running. A, Adolus has basically been running a Department of Homeland Security research project to build a framework we call FACT, Framework for Analysis and Coordinated Trust. And the reason that we ended up going this direction was I was looking at all these different technologies. I was looking at the technology that Billy had developed. I'd looked at the code signing. I looked at a bunch of hashing techniques. And I realized that the problem wasn't technology. It was really information sharing. That the whole challenge with a chain of, or The whole challenge with a supply chain is trying to share the information from who's contributed to this product, where did it come from, uh, what do the vendors know, what do the uh, customers know, what do researchers know, and how do we build out an ecosystem where we can have um, all the information in the world about, say, a given firmware bundle. How do we get that all in one place? How do we build a, an ecosystem that will allow the community to share information they've
1: found? So, yeah. So, you've basically given me my next question. Yeah. <laughs> you can't you can't end on a question. I'm going to ask you back. Mm-hmm. How do you share all that information? What you know? How do we fix this problem?
2: Yeah. So the way we started was okay who knows the most about some software not the whole answer but the most and it's probably the vendors so what we like to do is work directly with the vendors and we have built these tool sets that we give to the vendors that fingerprint their uh their software that they're about to release and they take these fingerprints and the fingerprints are um, well-known uh, security techniques like hashing um, and proper checking of the search chains um, but then they also, we do a number of other techniques um, to um, develop fingerprints so we can recognize uh, other packages in the field. And we do that for the bundle that the vendor is going to release. And then we tear it all apart and start to build the materials and do it all over. And we just recursively keep on um, taking apart the, the, all the packages we can find um, inside a vendor's um, installation package until we've just broken it all down and we've characterized every component. And so that's the first stage. Getting um, this is what the vendors are pushing out onto the market to their customers. And we try and do it through their entire history, their entire library. So a good example is OSIsoft. We've now got four years of OSI uh, software releases into the database. Um, And the important part is it's all been
1: characterized down to what all the subcomponents are. To paraphrase some of what what Eric's saying there, if you get... A software package to install, uh, you know, with a big chunk of a control system in it, you're going to have many executables in that package. You may have many, let's call them sub-packages. If the vendor, you know, I don't know, pick a vendor, Siemens, ABB, one of the big names, uh, sends you 200 megabytes of stuff to install, that 200 megabytes likely contains... You know, four or five megabytes from vendor X, uh, three or four megabytes from vendor Y. And these, these separate chunks might be uh, embedded as separately installable packages. So when you do the master install, it also launches these other sort of subordinate installs. You may have seen this if you're installing software on, on your computer. You install a big package and you get what looks like three or four different vendors install dialogues coming up, going next, 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 next to all of them where did all these other vendors come from those install packages were embedded in the big install that you did the you know the good news here is that you know you you saw some of this come by the screen you got an idea that this other vendor stuff is in there you know another piece of good news is that now this stuff is in theory at least independently updatable because you can see it in your list of installed software you could theoretically install an update for it a security update for it because your your operating system knows how to how to manage stuff that's in the list of installed software so this is what he's talking about when he's talking about recursively going through you know the four megabytes of embedded stuff may itself have a one megabyte embedded package he's talking about going through and opening up all of these you know uh, packages within packages and adding them to the bill of materials I hope that makes sense you can reach inside and, and even see the libraries.
2: It depends on how the software is built. You know, certainly there's some things we can't get into. We're getting better and better at tearing apart libraries. And we're also starting to use um, other third parties who specialize in particular operating systems or particular techniques. Again, I'm not trying to reinvent or create new technology per se, as much as, hey, if, if there's a company out there, a good example is Refirm Labs. They're really, really good at taking apart Linux packages and embedded systems. Um, we partner with them, so when we bump into a, a Linux product for ICS, we can give it to them to really take, do the library analysis. Um, if it's a Windows, a Windows package, we're really good at those, um, and we'll continue to sort of partner with people to get more and more intelligence. And that's the start. That's getting the vendor's data up into the cloud. Again, one of the things that's really important, we don't take the software. We want the fingerprints because everybody's protective about their software, so we put these fingerprints. Now once we have all these fingerprints and hashes and we use other techniques, then we start scouring the internet to see if those hashes have ever showed up anywhere else. For example, are those hashes in VirusTotal? um, Do some of those components show up in uh, malware? That would be a really good thing to know. Um, Are some of those components showing up in the National Vulnerability Database? Maybe under a different name. So we start to then aggregate a score uh, around um, all the subcomponents. And uh, where do we get the software originally? Where's the subcomponents coming from? Uh, When I say community, I mean the entire community, including the vendors, the uh, developers, the users, um, the the analysts out there. Uh, What is everybody thinking about those components so that we can build an aggregated score for a bundle?
0: Andrew, what is VirusTotal?
1: Well, Eric mentioned uh, a bunch of different sources of information. Um VirusTotal is an online database of malware. You can go there and download the virus of your choice. Uh, you know, be careful with it because you know you get what you asked for. You asked for a virus, and you know, if you, you trigger it on your machine, you know, it's it's on your head. Um the know the reason you go to virus total is to get the the malware in order to analyze it and to get cryptographic hashes of the malware or to get the malware yourself and calculate your own hashes and so um you know this is part of the input if in uh, eric's example if you're about to install a piece of software and you you know you run the checks on it and it comes back and says you know this matches bit for bit a, uh, a component that's been uploaded to Virus Total and flagged as malware—that's a clue that you don't want to install it. And these kinds of hashes, cryptographic hashes for, for malware, can be found in the Virus Total database. In uh, sometimes they're in the Common Vulnerability Database, the CVE. Uh, when there's a CVE, you know, description, they might actually have cryptographic hashes, checksums of the uh, the malware. Um, Some of the alerts that come out of the uh, emergency response team, the certs, um, often they have indicators of compromise in the alerts as well. Some of the indicators are these cryptographic hashes. So all of these data sources are out there. And, you know, what I heard Eric saying is he's pulling this all together so that in one place, at one go, you can say, this thing that I'm considering installing here, um, you know, is it known to be bad because it matches one of the bad you know signatures? Is it known to be good because it matches a vendor signature? Is it in between? You know, I think this is what he's getting at. You know, you're talking about um, how to build a score, how to share this information, and it, you know, the end users in our audience are, you know, if I was an end user, the, the answer, the, the, the question I would ask immediately is, this is great, you have the information, you have the knowledge, how do I use it? How can I take advantage of this as a user of this technology? So for the asset owners, for the people who are um, now
2: operating these control systems, the thing is that you don't want to get buried with information. So we decided to follow the model that the financial industry uses, which they use in credit scoring. So take somebody like FICO, uh, the FICO scores that are produced by Fair Isaac or the uh, Equifax scores. When a bank says, hey, I'm considering loaning Andrew some money, uh, and Andrew wants to you know, remortgage his house or whatever, the, there's a lot of information about your buying behaviors. Your um, and, and so there's information from the credit card companies. There's information from other banks you've approached. There's information from merchants you've dealt with. There's information that you've provided. So there's information all out there. Now the bank doesn't want all that information. What they would like is a one-page report starting with a score. And if your score comes back and you have a credit rating of 100, they'll probably make a pretty quick decision that you're not getting any money. If you've got a score of 800, you're probably getting a quick decision that you are getting money. The interesting thing about credit scores is it's not a decision. The credit scoring companies don't tell the banks loan money or don't. They say, here's an easy decision. Here's two easy decisions, yes or no. And here's the fuzzy areas where you want to start asking more questions. And we see the same thing needed in software. There are going to be some software that gets a really good score. Um, It has no known vulnerabilities. It has no known malware components. Uh, It's coming directly from a vendor. The signing is in good shape. And so that makes it a very easy decision. Install it. Use it. Um, Then you're going to have some software that has a terrible score. That makes another easy decision. You don't use that. Go back to the vendor. Ask for something else. Um, where you want to spend your effort and security is about being efficient in your effort is that stuff in the middle, that stuff that's sort of getting a 50% score. Then you're going to have to have somebody dig in and read the reports and and make the decisions um, based on the user's environment. You know, how mission critical is this? Am I willing to take a risk? Um, And so it's, it's, there's where the score really um, is valuable. It's not as much, that the score is useful for telling you what to do, as to telling you where you need to spend more effort and what you can just make an automatic decision on.
1: Let me ask. Let me ask a more mundane question. Um, you know, the uh, the score concept makes sense. Um, you know, the mundane scenario is I have a systems integrator vendor shows up at my doorstep, and I'm operating a large industrial facility, and they've got a USB key and there's 75 files on it you know 40 of the files are new HMI screens and there's some custom software executables that the the integrator has produced and tested on their testbed and they've got some uh, software updates from vendor X and security updates from vendor Y and other files that I don't even know what they are and he says here I come what do we do how me- mechanically how do we deal with this that
2: that's a perfect use case because that's um, one of our first major uh, use cases we're working right now with one of the major vendors uh, in the ICS space and they have a USB checking system and when somebody plugs that USB key in they're going to locally analyze them really quickly and send those fingerprints we give them the fingerprint algorithms they'll send those fingerprints up to the up to the database and we'll give them reports on all 50 of those files some of them we'll have never seen. The HMI screens will come back, but we might be able to give them some analysis on those screens, saying, "Well, you know, these don't look like executables for the following reasons, so they may be safe." Um, and hey, these particular files are known to come from trusted vendors. Uh, and they were signed well. Um, they're still signed well. Oh, and these files, hmm, we don't like them. So that we can, right at that USB console, there can be um, a warning that, say, the following three files shouldn't be getting taken into this plan.
0: Eric here is expanding on, on a subject that we talked about a little bit in, in our Mark Faber episode. Andrew, what are those, um, what are those pods when you come out, you're, you're, you're in space, and then you come back into the spaceship, and then you have to go through that whole cleansing thing? What are those called?
1: I don't know airlocks I mean
0: the- uh, Oh yeah okay this sounds like like a cyber airlock to me
1: Yeah more like science fiction there isn't any dust in space but you know people speculate in future the 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 astronauts will need this on on Mars because the the dust There is there's dust so- on the moon There is dust on the moon I just I don't remember that there was a decontamination issue but they they're talking about this yeah so decontamination is the is is the right idea here we can argue about science fiction and science fact what we see a lot of people using is uh, they call them antivirus cleansing kiosks. They, you know, they might be a computer, but you know, half the time they they physically stand alone in the middle of the the entry area as you're coming through the the security checkpoint into the site, and uh, you know you go through you badge through security, and the right there is is in your face is one of these kiosks that are you know chest high, and they ask the question, have you got any USBs with you? That you want to carry into the site you say yes you drop the, the key into the the kiosk it scans the key with maybe uh you know maybe an antivirus engine maybe four or five antivirus engines and renders a verdict about the files on the on the the usb key depending on policy you might then remove the key and carry it in if everything passed or you might copy the files that you want to carry in onto a, a brand new USB key. There's a, a box of them sitting beside the kiosk. The kiosks. So you have sort of the only keys that are allowed inside are the, the blessed keys, the blessed vendor. So this this kiosk concept is something that we we see increasingly at industrial sites. What I heard Eric saying here is uh, this traditionally, you know, focused on, on antivirus engines, on running multiple antivirus engines. Um, this is potentially being expanded by the the Adolis technology to include uh, consulting the internet-based database and asking the question, um, do I you know how much do I trust any of this stuff on the USB that is an executable? So you know that 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 sounds to me like a very interesting application. That's sort of the right place to put this functionality in a, a defensive system.
0: And all this kiosk talk it recalls one of those oft-cited Andrew Ginter arguments that all information can be an attack. Anything that crosses the perimeter is potentially dangerous.
1: Indeed, the the third law of cybersecurity. Um, Yeah, and... It's it's not just the kiosk that would need this. I mean, if you if you physically have a you know a cart with with uh, boxes on the cart and the boxes are full of new computers coming in, arguably arguably you'd want to do the same thing for these new computers coming in. You'd want to scan them somehow before you let them physically into the site, um, to be sure that the software on the computers is trustworthy. So this is you know this is a, a a question that needs to be asked of any kind of software or any kind of hardware that contains software, like new computers and USB keys, and even, you know, arguably even cell phones, if you're going to connect them to anything, um, needs to be asked of, of any any software coming in. Uh, you know, how much do I trust it? Should I really be bringing this into my control system? So in your example, um, you know, uh, same systems integrator shows up, 75 files. We've got the report. We have not uploaded the files to the internet. That's a lot of upload. Uh, we've uploaded the, the the signatures, the hashes. Who else can see those signatures? That you know is is forever after those signatures attached to my site and my name.
2: Yes, that's a very good question. So basically, what we do is we have the overall database of um, files or signature file signatures, but then um, every. Um, corporate user gets their own tenancy, in effect where it's their records about who in the organization um, uploaded those files or didn't don't upload them we um, you know upload the signatures and so they can see a history on those files but those are just for that organization Um, we're not sharing that back to say the vendors now we do share some information back to the vendors um, but not um, we sh- will share statistical information back to the vendors. But we're not saying, oh, oil company X loaded your software on day Y. That That is not the intention.
1: Eric is talking about uh, sort of customer-specific branches of the database. And, and this is a good thing. I mean, uh, end users generally do not want the entire world to know exactly what software they have installed exactly what versions they have installed um you know This is a leg up for the attackers. It's not to say that if an attacker knows this information, you know, that's it, the the, the show's over. That's not true. It is one piece of information that attackers can find useful. If they know exactly what versions we're running, then they know they, they can go to these, you know, public databases and find out what vulnerabilities there are. In these in these versions, and they have an idea of how to attack the software if they can get within attack range of the software. So it's you know it's good to see that that uh, this knowledge is not being shared with the attackers. It wouldn't be the end of the world if it were, but um, you know a lot of a lot of organizations want they, they plan deliberately to keep this private. So this is a good thing. And and in fact, in my next question with Eric, um, you know, we talked about a little more detail of how this information is being used. Certain vendors who serve multiple sites, they can, they can draw conclusions like, oh look, this executable from, you know, that, that's custom to us, that only we use in the world, is the same on 64 sites and different on two. I mean, that sounds like, that sounds like gold to me.
2: It's, there's some very useful information for vendors. And in fact, the vendors have been very helpful to us in saying what type of information they would like without violating customer privacy. So one example, um, OSIsoft came to us and said, hey, um, what if we accidentally um, had your agent um, load signatures for a file that shouldn't be released in the public? So we gave them the capability and all vendors the capability of marking files, uh, the signatures, uh, as private, not for release. Now there's some very useful intelligence because if we suddenly see those files appearing in the wild, we can give report backs to the vendors saying, hey, you guys have an intellectual property leak. There are files appearing out in the real world that you have never released. You might want to deal with that. Um, We can also do other things. For example, uh, one of the things we really like doing is trying to see if we see a file we've never seen before. And what we want to do is try and classify it. We want to say that, well, that file, it doesn't match anything any vendors ever submitted, but it's 99.9% like a Rockwell file. Okay, that's useful because then we can take that back and look at our database of Rockwell files and do compares until we find something and say, oh, you know, that's exactly like this particular Rockwell binary, except two bits changed. Okay, well, if two bits are changed, that's probably not malicious. That's just a corrupted file. But... If I come back and I see a file that happens to have 1K more code in it than almost an identical file, ooh, that's another thing. And so these, we would be marking that as somebody's playing games. And that kind of intelligence, again, gets fed back to the vendor that, hey, there's counterfeit software being circulated in the wild under your banner, and you need to, you
1: need to know about that. You, you may have a problem out there. So the vendor may have a problem. The vendor may want to issue an alert proactively and, you know, be seen as as proactive. Absolutely. Yeah. They, they may be wanting
2: to issue alerts. They may want to, uh, um, you know, start working with somebody like the um, ICS cert. They may um, also want to start putting in some sort of detection tools into their client site to say, you know, here's a tool to look and see if you've got counterfeit. I mean, counterfeits. In hardware, nothing new. I mean, Yokogawa's had problems with people making, you know, fake transmitters, and there's a whole program that they have, for example, around helping their customers make sure they don't get fakes. Um, That same thing, I imagine a vendor who suddenly found they had counterfeit software out there would be starting to want to drive the same program to
0: to prevent the spread of some sort of fake software. So it sounds like aggregate information is shared with vendors.
1: That's right. Uh, You know... It lets the vendors know when they have certain kinds of security problems or intellectual property problems It you know lets them take appropriate measures. Most of those measures sound like communicating with the public about versions of software that may be contaminated or software that may be flying around out there that that you know hasn't been tested properly that's that know that that shouldn't be used because it you know it it came through an unauthorized channel.
0: Let's get back to Eric
1: It sounds like there's benefits to vendors but historically i you know the experience of, of of others other small enterprises uh you know dealing with behemoths like schneider electric and general electric and, and honeywell um how you know how's it been uh comparatively small enterprise bringing these vendors on board how's it going it's going you know
2: better than i could have hoped um you know when i first started this i thought oh my goodness we're you know no vendor's going to want to share this information uh, but two things have really helped. One, we, I'm, you know, I've been a vendor. I know how I protect my privacy. I know all the rules. So, you know, we've had all these controls that we've put in place. Um, you know, while we talk about vendors submitting signatures, but it's actually a multi-checkpoint, multi-gate system um, that we designed specifically to protect the intellectual property of vendors. Uh, and secondly, it's really solving a problem. I mean, no vendor wants to be, you know. Have to deal with counterfeit software out there. It, it's not going to be a particularly good situation for the companies that got hit by Dragonfly. It was a very expensive mess. So if we can um, help take a burden off the backs of the vendors, and this is what we're finding. You know, again, you know, we're now working with um, three or four vendors, and you know, what we're seeing is, is this is something that is really. Uh, solving a potential high-risk pain point for them down the road.
1: This sounds technologically analogous to some of the the, the benefits that I hear from whitelisting listing system. I mean, does it make sense to to uh, run you know your kind of scan? Let's say uh, calculate a signature on every executable on uh, a VXWorks PLC. You know, upload those signatures and produce a report as to whether it's all been blessed. Is this something that makes sense?
2: Yes, I think it is. It's certainly a direction we want to go in um, where people can continuously monitor, so in effect it would be a form of whitelisting. listing. Um, we've also actually been approached by one company who would like us to do the whitelisting listing um, on the packages that are coming in uh, through the network, so basically analyzing the network traffic, seeing if it contains files, seeing if they're executables and sending those up. Um, so, Yeah, effectively, this is, uh, I would describe it as a way of building almost a whitelist database. And then you have all sorts of different technologies in the field that are doing that checking, whether it's querying a particular PLC or watching the traffic. Um, But the important
0: thing would be to build that ecosystem that has all that information. Sounds to me like there is a lot of opportunity for future work in this field.
1: Definitely, definitely. And, you know, when we start talking about future work, we're, we're generally coming up on the end of the podcast. We like to leave our guest with the last word. You know, when I was there doing the recording, I asked Eric, you know, is there a thought you'd like to leave with our audience? And uh, his answer was surprising. He said, yes, yes, there is. He says, ask me about the name. So I did. The name Adolus. I mean, it, it sounds like one of these abstract marketing names. What, where did Adolus come from?
2: Yes. Uh, Well, Dolus is the Greek uh, demigod of treachery and deception. He was uh, famed for making fake statues. And A is the negation in Greek. So we're basically uh, wanting to say there's no treachery, there's no deception, and there's no fakes. We're trying to create a world where making fakes, uh, fake software, uh, is no longer viable.
0: I thought your comment was funny Andrew that it sort of it, it's a real name but it sounds like a fake it's it kind of sounds like uh like pre, a prescription drug
1: so it's not a made up marketing word it it actually means something uh you know the the greek prefix a atonal amoral means not dolus means anti deception uh, we need more of that you know i wish him well
0: well that sounds like all for this episode Thanks to Eric Byers, and thanks to you, Andrew, for speaking with me. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Nate. This has been the Industrial Security Podcast. Catch you all next time.